Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today, literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Support for the Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn. Cole Hahn's shoes, bags, and outerwear go with you while you work your way to extraordinary. More at colehahn.com. Maxine Hong Kingston, the daughter of Chinese immigrants, was born in Stockton, California. Her debut book, The Woman Warrior, Memoirs of a Girlhood Among the Ghosts, won the National Book Critics Circle Award in 1976 and gained her worldwide attention. Her follow-up book, Chinaman, won the 1981 National Book Award, and Kingston has said she considers these two books two halves of a whole. In all, she has published over a dozen books of nonfiction, poetry, and fiction, and won many additional awards, including the National Humanities Medal in 2014. Kingston delivered this lecture in January 1992, just two months after her home had completely burned down in the Oakland firestorm, and three months after her father had died. She had been working for months on a new novel, which was entirely lost in that fire. She recounts this harrowing day, and in doing so, talks about the role of destruction in creativity, and of rediscovering the book she would ultimately complete and publish, entitled The Fifth Book of Peace, an homage to the books of peace that appeared in China hundreds of years ago that were deliberately burned because of how threatening they were to the reigning powers. All of these subjects and themes seem to us here at Literary Arts as particularly relevant right now here in the Pacific Northwest, and they seem so to our listeners as well. This lecture was selected in a poll of our audience as the listener's choice from our deep backlist of episodes. Oh, and one other treat. Kingston reads from the very first draft of the fifth book of peace near the conclusion of her talk. So here's Maxine Hong Kingston speaking in front of a live audience at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall in the 1991-92 season of Portland Arts and Lectures. Good evening. Thank you for the kind welcome. Tonight I want to tell you about the book that was burned in the fire. Um... It had, uh, it, I had not named it yet, I didn't have a title, but there was a subtitle, and uh, the subtitle was A Book of Peace. And um, it was my idea to um, write a book in the tradition of three Chinese books of peace. Um, mythically, uh, we hear that um, at various times in the thousands of years of Chinese history, there were books of peace that told um, tactics for how to um, negotiate conflict, how to avoid war, how to build a peaceful uh, society. And um, as each one of these were written, I think. I I don't think any of them lasted for very long. They were uh, destroyed. Um, Sometimes a library would burn, and and the book 
would be destroyed. And then another one was written, and um, and uh, there would be one of uh, a change of regime. And uh, you know, when a new king or emperor came in, um, he would order the uh, books burned and the historians killed. And um, and then, of course, I suppose there were also um, uh, natural firestorms too. But what we know of those books is just about what I've told you, that um, um, in, in a way, um, we don't know uh, that they ever really existed except in dreams of, uh, of uh, people who, who um, uh, thought about um, uh, whether peace was a possibility. And so, as I, um, so it was my idea that I would um, see whether I could reconstitute one of these books of peace by envisioning what, what might have been in them and then writing one for our times. Um, I, I was experimenting with, um, with uh, what kind of um, a form a peace book might take. And, um, and I, I um, see that um, the the plots the um, the way that uh, books and plays and uh, movies and television uh, they they seem to all have one the same kind of pattern which must be a pattern that's in the human mind and psyche which is that there is um, a rising action and then um, a violent um, confrontation and climax and then um, a, and through that is a realization and revelation. Um, and so I was thinking, is it possible to give a different shape to the novel? Uh, and, um, and, and, and so that when, when this new shape of story, if, if, if it could be written, and if there were readers, um, it could change the patterns in our minds so that um, we um, uh, work for, um, uh, toward a nonviolent uh, uh, re resolutions and, and climaxes. Is it possible to have drama without violence? So I was work. Uh, I was trying for a new kind of plot, and then um, this this story would be populated by n uh, new kinds of characters. I was um, inventing characters that um, uh, who who had um, peaceful souls, so that when they came across. Um, our human problems, they could, um, they could uh, deal with them um, in uh, peaceful ways. And, and I, I was writing about a marriage in which the people, um, it wasn't just a young marriage, but they could go into middle age and, um, and treat one another um, in, in a loving uh, ways. Um, and, that, and while writing this story and uh, and these characters, of course, I would uh, I I was working on inventing a um, 
a nonviolent language, and so that language itself becomes um, um, peaceful, and the metaphors would be uh, peaceful. I I would get rid of all those metaphors about how we, uh, you know, shoot uh, for goals and uh, um, and how you know you know all those metaphors. Um, so actually, when um, this book uh, burned in the fire, uh, you know, I felt very cosmic in a way, because uh, then my book became one of the books that burned, and it's also a book of peace. I mean, it, it's just so strange. It made me feel as if there are um, forces of destruction and forces of creation out there. And uh, the forces of destruction uh, burned one peace book after another, and, and it got mine, too. Um, the, um, well, uh, during these last two months, as I uh, try to um, uh, figure out what to do next, and uh, how to write again, and um, what to um, uh, what methods I could use to uh, to write uh, another book of peace. It would be, I guess, if you count the three that were lost in China, and you count the one that I just lost in Oakland, I would be starting the the fifth book of peace. Now, how, how, what methods can I use? Um, one of the things I did um, was, um, you, you know, I had a, a student who, who, who was an English major and then became a hypnotherapist in the last few years. And so I asked him to come over and hypnotize me. And uh, maybe I could recall the book. The the original plan. He 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 said, "Okay, I'll hypnotize you, and you can envision the screen of the television set of of, of the terminal. And then, as uh, your words come up, you read them, and um, and then we'll tape you onto this tape recorder. And I, I you know, I." I really thought, I mean, this plan scared me uh, because <laughs> I was thinking, what, what, it, it seems so static or, or rigid. Um, the process was just recalling. It's just a, a memorization trick. Um, and what if, what if, um, all I could do was remember, and and then I would be frozen into that version, and not be able to um, rewrite and um, um, change things. Um, because and and it scared me also because memorization is not um, interesting to me. Um, as as I write, I like to be constantly discovering, um, going into the unknown territories, making the map as I go along, and every word that comes next is a discovery. And uh, this would be boring to just try to remember what came before. But then he, so I talked to him about that, and then we came up with another method, which was um, that, um, that I would set off on this journey, and um, 
and I would arrive at my house after finding many, um, um, oh, I don't know, like guides and companions and helpers. Um, and uh, then I would get to my house um, and envision it whole and go inside um, the, the, the alcove where I was working. And um, there would be um, my uh, pages and the computer with this light and water that I had found in, in this um, psychic journey. And it was a flask of light and water. Now, I'm, I am sure this is, this is the same flask that uh, Psyche found in her woman's journey that Aphrodite sent her on this quest. And she found this flask of, um, of water that the eagle helped her find. It's that for me, I found a spotted owl. See, this, <laughs> that my, my guiding bird is a spotted owl. And, and then I had this, this uh, water, and I, um, and I covered the room and my manuscripts and that computer with, with it, and it made this golden light, and the spotted owl is uh, sitting in the redwood tree, and, um, and um, uh, then all my characters came, the people that I had invented, all these peaceful, good people came, and, um, and, and, um, the post-hypnotic suggestion is that any time I needed them or that I needed my pages, I could hypnotize myself and go back and find a page and uh, retrieve what I needed for this next version. And, uh, and also my characters could talk to me and tell me how to write. Okay, so that's... Um, one uh, new method that has come to me as I um, try to find uh, this book again. Um, another thing that happened, um, I, I lost um, everything, all, all my material possessions. And, um, and, and for a moment I did enjoy owning nothing, but Suddenly, you know, almost right away, you, in this material society, you can't have nothing for very long because everyone insists on giving you gifts and clothes and underwear and everything. And, and, and p people started calling me with the most wonderful uh, word gifts. Um, there, oh, a friend of mine uh, told me a... a story about Josephine Miles. Um, the, uh, the last time that Berkeley burned, I guess it was in the 70s, uh, Josephine Miles said that um, everybody in town said that they had lost a manuscript in the fire. <laughs> and, but then she said that five years later, the best writing, the best poetry, was being published out of Berkeley. And um, the reasons must be, well, one of the reasons must be that um, all these people were bragging about what they had done, and so they had to live up to it. Um, another reason could be that, um, that everything had been destroyed, and so they were more determined than ever to... Um, to 
retrieve something out of that destruction. And so the forces of creativity were even stronger. Um, and I think another reason maybe was that the fire burned uh, all their half-baked ideas and, <laughs> and got rid of that, or they finished cooking them, and, uh, and there's just the essence that was left. And essence is what poetry is. Another friend called, uh, she's Phyllis Hogue Thompson, and she's a great Quaker poet. And um, she said, she said, I just have to say this to you. She said, if a woman is going to write a book of peace, it's given her to know total devastation. And I thought, wow, that's great. And so I got off the phone right away and I wrote it down. And um, then I decided that that will be the sentence. Uh, that will be the first sentence of the new book that I'm going to write. Okay, so since the fire, I have written 18 pages. And uh, so now I know what my rate is. It's like eight, what is it, nine pages a month is the way it's going right now. I'm going to read to you tonight the 18 pages that uh, I've been working on since the fire. If a woman is going to write a book of peace, it has given her to no devastation. Oh, uh, notice that I rewrote her sentence. She said, um, she said, total devastation. And I left out the total because um, I don't think it's total. I mean, there's a lot left. If a woman is going to write a book of peace, it has given her to know devastation. I have lost my book. 156 good pages in a firestorm that blew out of the Oakland Berkeley Hills and took my house, things, neighborhood, and other neighborhoods and forests. I almost reached my manuscript in time. I was driving back home from fun funeral rituals for my father. I have lost my father. He's gone less than a month. We were having one-month rituals early, Sunday, day off. It was the first time in my life I'd driven alone by myself away from Stockton and my parents' house. I turned on public radio for the intelligent voices and heard that the hills were burning quite a long way off, 45 houses destroyed toward Moraga, toward Walnut Creek. I could not understand directions, which way was east-west of the Caldecott Tunnel, north-south of the Warren Freeway. I pictured the fire far up in the hills, impossible that it crossed the freeway. Behind me, my sister-in-law, Cindy, was chasing me at 90 miles per hour. The family, not my mother, from whom we're trying to hide dangers, sent her to get me to turn back. She ran out of gas at Tracy. By the time I was going over the Altamont Pass, the windmills on the acres of wind farms were turning as usual. The Claremont Hotel was not on fire, but 150 houses burning and the fire not contained. The fire had blown to our side of the 10-lane freeway over and through Highway 24 and Highway 13. The newscaster said no cars have been trapped in the Caldecott Tunnel as originally feared. A police car and flares blocked the exit to my street. I drove fast to the next exit, which was also blocked. 
I had a sense that the police were setting up the roadblocks moments ahead of me. If I had driven faster, I might have saved the manuscript and my mother's jewelry and my father's watch, his eyeglasses, which fit my eyes, and his draft card, which I had found in his wallet. This card is to be carried on your person at all times. He carried it for, um, I guess, 50 years. No, 60 years. I got off onto West MacArthur Boulevard and drove too slowly through complicated traffic. It was the middle of the afternoon, about 2.30. The sky was black. The sun was red. This was a forest fire, and ashes were falling in downtown Oakland. Sheets of black paper flew among the tall buildings. I stopped at a store to ask whether I was going the right direction after driving a long while without coming to landmarks. I parked, could find no coin to put in the meter, and stood in line behind many, many after-school kids buying candy. Oh, I now realize it was Sunday, so they weren't after-school kids. Um, well, <laughs> well that, that'll be in the next draft. Okay. This is just the first draft, okay. I kept staying the last person in a shrinking, growing, shrinking, growing line. I went outside, too many cars to jaywalk to a security patrol office, and went back inside the store. The kids were thinking over the candies to the sides of the cash register. I told the clerk that I was lost because I couldn't get off at my exit because of the fire. Which way to Berkeley? I care that he'd think I didn't belong to and didn't know that neighborhood. Though he was a foreigner, and the woman sitting almost hidden behind the counter, also a foreigner. She wore a white scarf that covered her hair and a long skirt with an apron, as if she were cooking. She was not an old woman, nor from olden days, but from an old country. I couldn't tell their country, not Mexico or South America or the Philippines, from the man's accent. The woman didn't try to help me out, didn't say anything, or give me a kind look. I get scared whenever I dearly want to learn something, that I'm not going to be given the knowledge, that I'm not going to get it, that I'll forget it. I did not tell exactly where I was heading in case he wanted to cooperate with the roadblocks. He put me back on the freeway. I got off onto Broadway and kept going in what seemed to me the continuing direction until I saw a waterfront and the bay. Broadway then goes all the way across Oakland from the bay to my house. In the middle of my U-turn, the radio said that Broadway and Broadway Terrace were on fire and that there was looting on Ostrander Street. I pictured those two parallel streets, Broadway for the cars, Broadway Terrace for walking, eucalyptus and pine trees and apple trees between them and along them, a tree-high wall two street thick of flame. Making the U-turn, I said out loud, no, no, no. Ostrander is, was a small street very nearby on a hill curving down to my house. Families of quails would come walking out of and running into the bushes. Once I stood amazed at the cent once I had stood amazed at the center of a storm of birds, robins, blue jays, chickadees. What's wonderful about Oakland? You'll see a white crane extending itself, flying over the city. It must live at Lake Merritt or Lake Anza or Temescal. Anne Frank saw cranes out the sky window. It can't be too late. All I want is a minute inside the house. 
run to the far end of the living room, where my manuscript is in a wine box in the alcove, and with one more breath, run upstairs for the gold and jade that my ancestresses had been able to keep safe through the wars in China and the journeying across continents and oceans. Um, it's just amazing how all images come together. You know, jade is a peace jade. It's a stone of peace. And you wear it um, for peace of mind and, and also for your um, aspirations, I guess, for the world. Stupid about directions, I lost time. At where Berkeley forks the California College of Arts and Crafts, where Whitman kissed Tanya, but a few feet from the sign pointing up to Broadway Terrace, the police were herding the cars down and away to College Avenue. I stopped at the light and got out to try to talk a policeman into letting me through. Even though the light turned green, the people behind me didn't honk or yell. I asked, are you sure I can't drive up there? He said that no cars were allowed past that point. I did not ask, may I go to my house on foot then? I drove diagonally across the intersection and parked in the red curb stop for the College Avenue bus. The police wouldn't be writing parking tickets today, or $28 worth it. The car could have been left there by someone who had escaped the fire and was staying as close as he could to home. I stood at the corner plotting how I was going to get past the police and got in step with an African-American family with many children crossing the street. I told them I lived on Golden Gate Avenue and was trying to get there. Where did they live? They lived on Brookside, which winds around Golden Gate. I asked, were you officially evacuated? Has our area been officially evacuated yet? They didn't know, but they had been back to their house. The father said, the police will escort you up to your house if you tell them it's a life and death situation. The mother said, they drove us up there. I said, what was the life and death situation? You told them. We couldn't find our son. Our son was missing. The kids, all about junior high age, were smiling and safe. I couldn't tell which one was the one lost and now found. An unfinished book is nothing as important as a child. I told the family I was trying to save the manuscript of a book I was writing. Said out loud in the open air to actual people who did not get excited, my plight did not seem to have enormity. <laughs> I've been working on it for years, I said. About one and a half years. Is one and a half years much? It depends on which years. Didn't Rilke write the Duino elegies in six months? Or was it six hours, one wide awake night? The happy family and I wished one another good luck and take care. While the policemen, the Oakland cops aren't as big as during the free speech movement <laughs> and the Vietnam demonstrations. Uh, we're busy, I walked through the barricades up into the defined fire area. Householders were still there, hosing down their roofs and dry grass. A flare of fire fell out of the sky and landed behind a man watering his property. I motioned to him that he looked to his rear, but he stared at me as if I were a crazy woman. I ran on. That flame had gone out. Others that were raining on his roof, his spray couldn't reach anyway. Oh, I see that, see, the reason that he couldn't hear me and I had a motion to him was that the helicopters were, were everywhere and making their noise. And um, 
Um, see, I'll put that in the second draft also. Um, but you see how all the images are fitting together because don't, that, that was an important um, image of, um, of the Vietnam War, too, was the helicopters. And, and so here's the helicopters um, at the fire. So that, that will fit in as this heads toward being a book about uh, peace. I was most scared when there were no people in sight. I had to be very careful and mindful of the air in which poison oak was burning, but I was not having trouble breathing. I ran slow enough so that I might control my wind. In case a gust of bad air surrounded me, I would not have to gulp it. I held my hair as a filter over my nose and mouth and breathed through it quite naturally. I passed many side streets without deciding to turn left into one. Many of these streets ended in cul-de-sacs or curved back out. I was mad at myself for not having paid better attention which streets went through where. Who was telling me a story about a child who lived near the burning of a great library? He caught pages of burnt paper and read Latin words. At Margarito, a long, wide street, I turned further toward the heat and fire. I passed a man and a woman leaving and a homeowner watering his house. No one knew whether or not this street were officially evacuated. I arrived at the edge of the golf course. The air was thick and there were branches on fire. I imagined myself running under the eucalyptus trees, but before getting to the open field, the trees dropping fire on my head and exploding. My husband teases that I'm always afraid of things exploding. Be careful, watch out, it's going to explode. Motors, dead animals, spiders, <laughs> tulies. If I crossed the golf course, I would come out at the corner of Broadway Terrace and Ostrander amidst the fire and the looters. I turned about and considered whether I was giving up on my writing. I let the possibility that the book was gone, my book gone, enter my ken. I did not feel bad, no fear, no pain. I was not believing that I had lost the book. I had not stopped trying to rescue it. Again, I passed the men watering down their houses, though the sky was darker now and the air worse. The sun was ugly red. I was fast running back because downhill and toward safe crowds and lights and air. I drove continuing on college to Chabot Road, which was barricaded. Chabot Road was my familiar turn home. It was not right that it be an impasse. I parked, surprised at how much free parking there was. As before, I became invisible to the police and walked for home. This way seemed almost normal. I should have gone up these known streets in the first place. As always, there was a stillness at St. Albert's. The monks had either evacuated the monastery or they were staying hidden. You hardly ever see them in the garden or out on the tennis courts anyway. The atmosphere feels full of prayer. The row of beech trees, my signifying tree, stood unharmed. The first tree seen by me when a child, and more magnificent each time I have found another one. Here was a row of nine beech trees here before I was here and meant to outlast me. I do not remember, however, touching them, each one, the elephant bark, the horned toad bark, as I usually do. I must have rushed past them. The leaves were a strong green, though October was ending and my 50th year was ending. The strange shifting light, the winds were blowing the weather and the time of day crazily up and down the street. 
stilled at St. Albert's, and started up again at Chabot Elementary. Shadows swinging across the asphalt and through the cyclone fences, backstop and jungle gym bars. Why do we raise children on ground barren of trees and grass? We are teaching them to endure a world like a cage and jail. Not until Golden Gate Avenue did I actually see burning, and it didn't look that bad, unless you knew what had been there before. The slopes on either side of the road were cleared of ivy and dill. Farmers will weed a field by burning the cane, chafe, burdocks down to fertile ash and black earth. Golden Gate, my street, begins at a cement bridge with a sign, narrow bridge. This bridge goes under a steel bridge, a steel bridge for the BART train. It's a wonderful surprise whenever the train appears out of or into the trees. The radio had said that BART shut off the Concord line. No information about fire damage to the train or its route. The rust-colored girders were smoking hot. I thought about whether I should go under there. The, the, the metal could melt and hit me. The entire structure break loose and drop. I needed to see around a bend to my house. I couldn't see through the train bridge to houses on the other side, but wasn't sure if you, if you ever could from here anyway. I ran quickly straight forward and felt the heat from above. I was in a gigantic kiln, which has since recurred in my nightmares. I am flying up into the hot ceiling and can't wake up. I came out into a changed world. The ground was a tangle with fallen power lines. There were logs burning in the middle of the street. I couldn't believe that the 30 miles an hour winds I'd heard about on the radio could throw chunks of houses about like that. They must have been blown here from explosions. The college prep school was not harmed. The roof beams, bare wood outline of the gym or auditorium they were building poked up out of the top of the canyon, which contains just the school. I'd been unhappy that they would most likely not cover this big new building with brown shingles to match the rest of the school and the environment. If you did not want the cutting of a dozen or so trees, the posters that had been stapled to them had declared you should petition the city and county or forever hold your peace. The shape of the canyon stood out, a black and defoliated wedge. It confused me not to see the houses and the trees that I was looking for. My memory was off, or they had burned away. A thing would appear, but it would be out of the order that was in my mind, and it did not cue a next thing to appear. I am not enough awake. One more bend and my house should come into sight. The unwanted little house on the corner that has changed owners yearly was still alive. The white boards of the edge furthest uh, from my house seemed water-soaked. A fireman was puttering about a medium-sized yellow fire truck parked across from the saved little house and next to the stone retaining wall. From here, like outside a walled city, I cannot see above the balustrade to the hill houses. The fireman said, we didn't get water up here. A mess of flat hoses and down phone wires lay like white serpents and black serpents all over the streets and sidewalks. I would not have gone on but for the fireman and a man who had gotten off his bicycle and was pushing it alongside me. There were no other people about. The house in the gully made it, crouching under the flames. The fire had blown over the top of the land. 
Stepping carefully over each wire, turning the bend, I looked up and saw that my house was gone. It was not that I recognized the place it had stood, or any familiar piece of it, or its neighbors, but that the landscape was everywhere utterly changed. I had come to the ash moon of a planet that passes through the sun, a house, not any I had seen before from this angle. I was looking at it through rows of invisible gone houses, was entire inside of a flame. The flame was a clear, shimmering, tapering orange jewel that held the house whole. The crystal inside a crystal, beautiful, perfect translucence. I had thought that burning, I had expected burning to be many flames eating away a thing, blackening it, then it falling apart section by section. On the other side of the street, there was a flagpole, so high that the flag was only singed. As I remember it, and limp because the winds that I had heard about on the radio had stopped. So though I could not identify it exactly, I did lay eyes on the side of my house across the street from the flag. Later, the ruins of our neighborhood kept appearing on the news because of that flag, clean and new in the pictures, and upon my seeing it again, I might have imagined it scorched, or my neighbors had run up a new stars and stripes. My flag, a white dove on a sky blue field, was gone. I had sewn two of them during desert storm, and hung one out the upstairs front window, and the other out the side toward the peaceful neighbor to hearten her. <laughs> She had been the first to put up a peace sign, made on her home computer. Across the top of the picture window, it said, "Every soldier is somebody's son," and across the bottom, "or daughter." A few days, a, a few days, a week later, for the remaining days of our country's mad fit, she changed to a hand-painted sign: "War is not an energy policy." We were two households with such ideas, amidst the trees and phone poles and gates tied with yellow ribbons. Even the gigantic eucalyptus at our crossroads had been tied. Some middle of the night, it was untied, not by me, and. Never retied. Nobody threw rocks through anybody else's windows. The writing was gone, and my father was gone, fatherless and thingless. Suddenly, I felt rushing at me, like a movie of a fire run backwards, and smoke ghosts hurrying back into the building, refilling it, pulling it upright. I felt coming back to me. Oh, but here, all along in my chest and stomach, ideas—whatever this is—that fire can't burn, spirit, which I had made from working and living as I do, though often purposely or accidentally unconscious. Nonetheless, I have perceived an interesting, beautiful world caused by my ways of seeing it. I wove and sewed its meanings, invisible jewels. This strength in my chest and stomach are myself, embodying values that I have thought out and acted upon. Compassion, beauty, peace are real. I was having intimations first had on LSD at the age of 21. Ideas have an invisible existence that pr protects them, pervious to fire and bombs. I am very good at feeling them. 
If the fire had killed me, do my ideas live without me breathing and thinking? My father is trying to kill me, to take me with him. We left out something in the rituals, and he's angry. This holocaust is the size of the anger that had been his task as a human being to socialize. Now he is dead. This heat is loose. Yes, it is the same hot feeling as anger, but it surrounds and is outside the body. I have always wanted the life you have. My father started saying that to me when I became a published paid writer. I thought he was wishing to have poems come to him as they do to me and to have readers. My mother tried scolding him into poetry. You used to be a poet. Where are the poems, poet? He wondered, why is it that I can like to read poems so much, but I can't write them? At the ritual when each of, of us, his children, spread a fabric of colors and flowers over his body, blanketing him like in a fairy tale. I tucked the fountain pen that my son had given me into his breast pocket. One evening and two days, we sent him paper, gold, silver, and orange paper, folded like boats and strung like lays, big enough to go around the necks of horses and elephants, more paper than anybody else gets. I had begun this day Morning seems a very long time ago by burning paper to him. We fed the paper, symbols of everything, into the brick fireplace in the Chinese cemetery on I-5. The chimney standing out there in the open seems to be hearth for the ancestors. All the skies and land of the San Joaquin Valley at the last their home. But from the timing and directions of the rituals, you can almost see the dimensions of another further away home. Its distance from the earth is about a month's walk away. We helped our father on the climb up the mountain, which is steep and dark. He is lonely, missing his body and everybody, us. We escorted him with our thoughts and imaginations, persuading him on and on. Our every wish against his leaving made it hard on him. Today, upon the one-month ceremonies, he enters that place where all of us will disappear when we die. Our cousin-in-law from China, she is very beautiful, very Chinese, hunkered by his grave next to his head, I think, and invited him to eat and drink tilting up and down the cups of whiskey, the whole chicken and the bowl of rice picadored with two smoking incense sticks. She interlaced her fingers and naturally, informally, bowed her head three times and hands many times and said, instructing us, say bye-bye to Babala. It was almost unbearable to watch my younger brothers and sisters one by one hands together like angels, bowing to our Father and all the awful conditions of life. If you, especially if you are a, uh, a veteran of war, I'm very interested in, in hearing, uh, or, or you're writing down a, a, a story about um, how you got from being a warrior to living the life of peace that you have today. Uh, what happened in the last 20 years um, to bring you to where you are now? Um, I have a story that is similar to that that I am working on. Um, 
You know, my book, Woman Warrior, uh, lately, as I grow stronger in peace, I, I have regretted that uh, I have that title, Woman Warrior, you know. And uh, she was a swordswoman. Um, she solved problems with a sword. And um, so it's my task now to, um, to finish that story or to correct myself in the next book. Uh, one thing that I will do is to restore the ending to the old woman warrior myth. Uh, she was, um, you know, a Famulan, and uh, she had led a uh, this army uh, into battle uh, against the Tartars, and uh, she was disguised as a man. Okay, now I, I put all of that in the woman warrior. Okay, the part that I left out that I want to restore is that um, when she returned from battle, uh, she brought her soldiers home with her, and she told them to wait for her. And then she went inside the house, and she took off her armor, her disguise, and she bathed, and she uh, put on her silk robes, and she put on her makeup and did her hair. She had, in the chant, she has beautiful, long, black hair. And she dresses it and puts flowers in it. Her name, Famulan, means uh, flower orchid. So flowers are an uh, uh, important symbol uh, for her. And then she walked out in front of her soldiers, and, um, and she tells them that she was... Um, the general that had been leading them all this time, and um, she um, and she revealed uh, her uh, this new self that she was a woman. Um, you know what she was doing was giving them a gift before dismissing them. She let them see that when you come home from war, you don't have to return as a brute, you don't have to come back as Rambo, you could come back and then become a, a beautiful, nurturing citizen and, uh, and then continue your lives. So she gave them that idea to take with them as they dispersed back home. Now, I left that ending out. Um, it's such a wonderful ending, and you might wonder why I would leave it out. But the, the reason I left it out was that I was writing during um, feminist times when um, I didn't want to write about uh, a woman who came back and and um, put on makeup and and uh, a dress and uh, shaved and um, I, I didn't like that idea of her at all and it makes me see how um, uh, how very much our times influence uh, the myth that uh, we uh, receive and pass on. So now I feel is is really the time for that ending where. Uh, where we are all returning home from so many wars, and uh, how are we going to become uh, that beautiful feminine spirit again? Um, uh, let's see, another uh, gift that I'm asking for is um, uh, some money. I, I'm, I mean to um, 
again for this book, I would like to take a group of Vietnam veterans to France w with me and um, go to a Vietnamese commune that's in Bordeaux. And it's a Vietnamese Buddhist commune. And uh, I want to take my two brothers who are, who are the, the last um, uh, people that I wrote about in China Men, and I want to take uh, Larry Heinemann, who is coming uh, here soon, I think, to speak. And uh, he um, uh, uh, he wrote Paco's story, and I think he's coming out soon with another uh, a book about war. And uh, it's just maybe about six veterans, including a um, maybe a family of. Uh, uh, Chinese-American warriors that I know that they served in the last three wars and uh, the father actually was a, was a tactician who had sent his own son into a battle in Vietnam in which the entire platoon was killed except for his son and uh, this family, um, they, they just scare me, you know. I, uh, the, the, I was having dinner with them and, and the and the, the the sons were all going on with their battle stories, and the and the the mother of this family, the wife of, of one of them, said, "Oh, I knew you would all come back. Only the good die young." And so, uh, I these are some of the people that I want to take on this on this journey to to meet with the. Uh, with the Vietnamese Buddhists and to meditate with them and I want to write what happens and uh, uh, how uh, what happens when these people meet um, then in case they do not enjoy um, meditating and eating vegetarian food I want to also take them for a week in Paris so <laughs> I need enough money to, to, to do that Okay, take about a dozen people, including the wives and girlfriends, because I think it's important to bring the, all the people that have supported these men and, and got them from, um, or were with them from the time they were warriors to the time that they are living as peaceful, productive citizens among us. That was Maxine Hong Kingston from Portland Arts and Lectures in 1992. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Join us next time for the Archive Project, a literary arts production in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more from the Archive Project, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Support for the Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn, on a mission to fuel your big ideas. More at colehahn.com. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori for radio and podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson. Special thanks to Joe T. Roy and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.